Hi, Ilan here. The episode that follows was recorded before the horrific events of October 7th. And today, Friday 27th of October 2023, in the third week of the unfolding nightmare in the Middle East, things are still very bleak. We had been due to take the podcast and our work to be part of a festival at the Museum of London, and we were booked into a number of other events, but understandably, these have been put on pause. We also paused our episodes, partly because, like so many people affected by this crisis, Penny and I both have family and friends too close to immediate danger, and we were barely functioning in day-to-day life, let alone to think about this podcast. Our rule in this podcast to stay away from current affairs in the Middle East has never felt so essential, and I don't intend to break it now, except to say that our hearts are breaking for all those suffering in Israel and Gaza and in the wider region. We've just started planning again, rescheduling planned interviews, reorganising the episodes we had ready to go, and I found this one, and it gave me hope and made me smile. It's hard to see when might be a good time to restart this podcast, and we know for some people this might be too soon and too sensitive a set of topics. We believe that understanding Jewish identities and histories is part of any hopeful future. And now, as things feel so hopeless, we want to imagine that positive change is possible. We also know that as humans we have more in common than we do differences. Thank you for listening so far, and if now doesn't feel right, we respect that, but hope you'll come back. For those ready to go further, here we go. You've just yeah. got to read out the cheesy thing. Welcome to Who Do You Do? Who do, you do? <laughs> <laughs> oh God, this is good. <laughs> Welcome to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with me, Penny Radiger, and Ilan Ezekiel. Exploring the wonders of the Juniverse, and in particular, exploring Jewish experiences from individuals and communities for whom the label Jew isn't enough. And today, we're going to be thinking about Mizrach Hu. So we talked previously about the big three, Ashkenazim, Sephardim, and Mizrachim. And today, we're going to look at Mizrach Who Are You? So who are these people? I, mm. mean, <laughs> I guess that's what we're here to try and answer. We should also say that we, I, you are not experts here, right? We're going to try and uh, give a you know, bit more detail than we did last time in episode two. We're going to try and give a, a helpful uh, sort of lay of the land introduce some of the big topics. Our listeners are going to meet people who will identify as being Mizrahim and use that terminology. And we just wanted to sort of get people comfortable with that. So that's what we're trying to do here. We're not going to try and fill in all the gaps. And we could even say this episode is sponsored by Wikipedia because we did quite a lot of reading and just learning for ourselves to get some of the basics in place so that's that's the level of expertise is we <laughs> expertly have done some reading I don't know why you're laughing I think it's good basis I'm not know. I'm not I'm not I'm not ashamed at all I love Wikipedia and there's nothing wrong with it I think it's also the what has been really interesting is that these are words and ideas that I think I you know in the past few weeks I've been having conversations months been talking to people about 
the Mizrahi community. And I realized as I read some of the stuff leading up to today that I've been making some terrible <laughs> assumptions. And I, um, so there's things that it's been okay to talk about and I've been able to get away with it without really understanding what I was saying. I'm hoping that some of the people who are familiar with um, the phrase Mizrahi might come away today, um, thanks to our Wikipedia reading, uh, having to save themselves doing that reading and going, oh yeah, that, I didn't know that. So there, mm. you know, I think there is, I think there are some interesting little surprises ahead. And I want to say also that my, my lens on the kind of um, communities that are Mizrahim also comes from my scholarly pursuits um, and kind of personal vicarious experience um, around um, the issues around whiteness and otherness and othering in relation to Ashkenazi slash Mizrahi and the kind of perceived um, dividing lines and how that plays out in terms of opportunity and progression and stuff. So we, we might touch on some of that as well. I don't think we're going to be able to avoid it, really. Should we, yes. should we head off into the universe? Let's start at the beginning. Yeah. The term Mizrahi really was coined in 1948 in Israel by the state of Israel to describe non-European Jews. It literally go. means Easterners. There so, you go. So, part, so isn't that interesting already that the kind of the race project was all about splitting the world into European and non-European? Yeah. And when I was growing up, there was the idea of, you know, Orientals, right? You know, that was a perfectly everyday, you know, it was a different time then. You know, it's not a phrase that... Uh, <laughs> really works now but and yet there's a in 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 this context we've got a term that probably was of a similar time um which defines a group of people from the east but i wanted to ask east of where right and just for those who don't know hebrew mizrach means east yeah so it's it's a it's a you know direct translation if europeans can point east and they can point to um uh, i don't know syria and palestine as was israel palestine now that that area they can point east okay but we're also talking south we're talking about algeria we're talking about uh, libya egypt all the way around the levant so it's not just east but there's a large group of people for whom this term was uh, applied in Israel. And if they were in Israel, when this is 1948, right? These, a lot of these communities would have been West. <laughs> yeah, right? so it, it's indicative of other or yeah. elsewhere or over there and not here. Yeah. So it's already an alienating term and it's already centering whiteness and europeanness as standard yeah and i you know without you know i i you know there's the lens that you're looking at it from and i i take that but and i you know i think we're going to come back to it and i think this when i realized how recent that terminology was it kind of blew my mind i thought this was a much older term mm. i thought this was, a, was something that the 
um, that maybe went back somewhere between distinguishing from the Sephardim, and we'll come back to how that would work, you know, ages ago. I just didn't think it was as recent as this. Mm. So I think there's a novelty, uh, you know, a relative, you know, it's a very recent term, and that the term Easterner, Mizrahim, is a sort of geographically confusing term, let alone all the sort of race project stuff and all of that. It's just a bit weird mm. because if you're centered in Israel, um, if that's a center, then yes, there are some Mizrahim who would be from, uh, I don't know, the Bukharan Jews up towards sort of northeast northeast of Israel. And there would have been some people who might have been Id- Idanis, so down in Aden, which is sort of southeast-ish. But a lot of these communities would have been directly north and directly west. So there is a sort of question about how weird that must have been for people arriving from the west into Israel going, huh? you're calling us Easterners? Yeah. Mm. Do you know what I mean? There's like a, there's just a bit of a weird disconnect there about the, the geography. Mm. It's not by chance, of course. No, no. So, and I think that's, there's a sub- subtext here. And, you know, on one level, um, obviously there is the wider um, othering, European othering um, norm, which mm-hmm. which sort of makes sense of that. But um, there's a sort of just a sort of linguistic labeling thing that that um, must have felt very normal at the time. But, you know, well, normal to normal to whom? And and also because, you know, it was the Ashkenazi Jews who were kind of populating Israel and feeling that they were leading on the Zionist project. Right. Yeah. And it meant that these communities were able to be identified for what they were, which is Jews that want have with a right to return and that they had a they were able to come in. And it gave a I guess administratively, it meant that they didn't have to explain everything. Some of the people I've spoken to are really, you know, really comfortable with this terminology. So um, we have lots of questions. Well, it's interesting. You say that they had the right to return and they came in like everybody, but they had to be labeled differently. So there were class True. A, class A, A for Ashkenazi Jews, and then there was the second class citizens, and also the way that they were treated when they came in. Mm. So, who are these communities that were arriving in Israel and being labelled as Easterners? Let's get a sense of how far and wide this label covered we can start relatively easily with right next door which is the egyptian jews Mm -hmm. we are in very carefully staying away from discussing the politics of modern israel but let's just while we're talking history there were the war of independence or the war of, of 1948 with around those surrounding states there would have been a lot of jews who would have left egypt and come straight to Israel because mm-hmm. they did because of the immediate conflict. So there were Egyptian Jews, and then um, for, uh, around there you've got the Syrian Jews, Lebanese Jews, people who were in the immediate geography of of Israel, and they would have been labelled as Mizrahim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've also got uh, 
communities a little bit further on. So you've got uh, the uh, Kurdish Jews, Turkish Jews. I'm going to stop saying Jews after everything. <laughs> I'm just going to say people from Turkey, people from um, from further north, right? Um, and the Bukharian Jews from the Caucasus, Afghan Jews. I've done it again. Um You've missed, that... you've missed the Iranians and the Iraqis. Oh, no, I was and... going to come back. Oh, you're going to come back special. to them. Sorry. They're, they're, they're okay. special. I oh. think they're interesting. I think, okay. well, they're kind of... They're all interesting. They are all interesting. But just sort of like geographically, mm. we've kind of gone the immediate bit around Israel. Fair okay. enough. I mean, You've got, I kind you got of... a better grasp of geography than me. Then you've got people coming from the north. Mm -hmm. And then there are a whole load, if you follow the top of uh, Africa... Mm. You, you've got people from Libya across to uh, uh, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria, of course. Mm. Missed out Algeria. My, that's, that's my geography being crap. Um, and there are Jews traveling across the top of Africa towards Israel. And so, again, these are west <laughs> of, of, of Israel, south of Europe, mm. and being defined as the Mizrahi. So these mm. are large historically ancient communities of Jewish people mm. who've been there, some of them since biblical times, mm. having to be labelled as special, a special group being clumped together. It's like BAME. It's like the precursor to BAME. You just call yeah. them people from over there. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got the, uh, the Jews of the Maghreb, so uh, heading across to the top of uh, yeah the sort of from the North African coast. And we've got the Jews coming from the north, uh, sort of heading closer to, to, um, to the, from the Caucasus. And then there is a very distinct group from, from both Iraq and Iran. These were big communities, ancient communities. Uh, the the Baghdadi, Baghdad being a huge center of Jewish learning for mm -hmm. forever. Um, and that's a large community that comes, that travels and arrives. So you've got this ex, sort of a mini exodus following an exodus, um, following another exodus, uh, leaving and arriving from all these very different, uh, very different cultures. You know, mm. the, you know, I think there's a sort of a question here and this is what we'd love to hear. You know, we, we're going to be hearing from people who've got family stories about this and investigating this hearing from the people mm. whose communities these are. Mm. But um, to say that uh, the Iraqi Jewish experience is the same as the Tunisian experience is the same as, uh, I don't know, the Edani for people from Aden. These are, to call all of these people Mizrahim mm. seems odd now, but that's what happened. So mm. they were classified the same. Mm -hmm. Weird. Um, Weird, but, but, but part of this need to categorise and sort mm, and differentiate. Who are these people? How did they get there? And what was going on? Now, this is, again, clearly not a history lesson. Mm. But there, as we said, there are Jewish communities in all of these, in, in many parts of um, the Maghreb and across the Levant and across Europe. And... You know, to say that they were following trade routes and merchants kind of, for me, buys into this whole idea of Jews as 
connected to money and all of that. There were soldiers, there were sailors, there are um, skilled workers, there are people traveling as pe- normal people did, right? Yeah. Just tra- traveling around. The idea that, you know, the wandering Jew idea mm. kind of bugs me because actually, if you look at the historical records, lots of communities were traveling. But there is a oh, there is there is clearly evidence of Jewish communities moving around that part of the world into mm. Europe, around Africa, and so, staying still as well. Yeah, because while you have movement, you also have you know people who stayed and ancient communities that kept going, while people flowed in and out. So yeah, yeah, until somewhere after the dark ages then it seems to be again the academics don't always agree but the numbers of jews in the world at the time estimates were that there were far more outside of europe than there was it within europe there was clearly a tipping point somewhere in the middle ages where the jewish population of europe grew much much bigger mm. but um you know the idea that the majority of the jewish population would have been in any one place I think, doesn't stand up to what the history seems to show us. The, and it doesn't, um, doesn't stand up to now. Don't they say there's more Jews in New York than there are in the whole of Israel? I think that's evidentially the case for anyone who's been to either of those two places. <laughs> we're that's everywhere. Funny. That's the great thing. We're everywhere. Yeah. And we've been yeah. everywhere and we're going everywhere. Yeah, well, we say that. But I've got Nigerian friends who talk about Nigerians being everywhere at the moment. You know, people travel. <laughs> that's OK. You know, and, and of course, when you go places and you spot people who are like you and you want to. Cl- of course, you make the joke like, hey, we, we found our, we found each other. We're everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a sort of a historical experience of travel and of uh, community building across the Levant and across the Maghreb. That was probably very normal for Jews and into the Sahel going further south as well. But we are going to perhaps talk about them, about that group separately um, or certainly with a bit more focus and perhaps with people who know what they're talking about. What changed? Well, one of the big things that changed was that in 1492, the, um, the Inquisition, Spain and Portugal kicked out all the Jews. And an established group of Sephardim, so Sephardim means Spanish, from Spain. So these were Jews from Spain um, and the, Port- the Iberian Peninsula. They were forced to leave. So where did they go? Some went north into the rest of Europe. But a lot of them went to the established Jewish communities elsewhere. So they went south. They went east. They went to the... Um, to Baghdad, they went to Tunisia, they went to safe places. So we've got a very particular point where these communities um, mixed. And I think up until, you know, just going to the terminology, until uh, the state of Israel came up, you know, started applying that term, a lot of these communities would have called themselves Sephardim. Which means Spanish. Spanish. Right, because they followed the Spanish customs and liturgies of prayer and of um, of their religious practice. So it didn't mean they stopped being Tunisian people. Didn't mean they stopped being, uh, you know, Algerian Jews. I don't think that would have been that weird then. You still got this slight disjunct where you meet people who are uh, in Israel referred to as Mizrahi, and in outside they'll see themselves as Sephardim. 
but they'll describe themselves as being Sephardi because they follow Sephardic, Sephardic practice, but they're from, um, yeah, from Morocco. So you've got these uh, labels bouncing around, not really doing the work. And the label Jew doesn't do it. The label Jew doesn't really cover who they are. The label Sephardi Jew, oh, they're not actually Spanish. And they're not Iberian. They're not then, you know, but there's, there maybe was some intermarrying and there would have been some connection, of course. But it's not as simple as that. So the label Mizrahi, as you said earlier, is like a this sort of big label of other, but it covers a huge amount of rich history and diversity. Mm. Or, and and, and the, that big mixing point of the, of the effect of the Inquisition really mm. kicked that off. So let me just get this straight. So from 1492 until 20th century there's a bunch of people who are jewish Mm -hmm. practicing jews but they're living in arab lands or you know muslim practicing islamic lands yeah How, how did that how did that work well in many of those countries in those uh areas they would have been dimmy so people of the book and actually some of these communities will have predated the arrival of Islam into those areas. There would have been accommodations made so that those communities could carry on being harmonious and, and carry on as they were. And, you know, before... And they're um, basically cousins, right? Anyway, yeah. Islam and Judaism, they're basically cousins. So yeah, there's no and, reason why they shouldn't get on. They're family. And the, and the history of different parts of Jewish, ex- the, the experience of different Jewish communities' histories is not all of conflict with Islam and with their Muslim neighbours. Not at all. It's really not like that. And there were, there were tensions and there were problems in different places. And again, we're skimming across huge amounts of geography, <laughs> huge amounts of time. And history. <laughs> uh, yeah. But there was intermarrying. There was people, there were people moving between, there was ge- people moving from Europe, from mainland Europe, from, uh, you know, from Spain and Portugal across through the Caucasus, through Af- uh, Iraq and Iran. And then also to India, there was huge amounts of movement. But people just got on because that's what people were doing, just living their lives, right? Not defining know, themselves by their religion. Do you know what also I think really united them and remains similar is food. <laughs> I, I often want to do like um, chasing the parata, yeah. <laughs> which is also malawah, which is also kind of roti, yeah. which is also, you know... Well, rice travels, right? Yeah. You know, the, there's the foods, the, the foods will have traveled and they would have been common and exciting. And there are, um, there are historical records of the time of people importing food from North Africa to where they were working as traders on the Indian West Coast. Mm. They were so desperate for the food of home mm-hmm. that they would pack it in boxes in the ships to, so that they could enjoy the spices and tastes of home. Mm-hmm. And likewise, so there were Jewish communities, but also just peoples of those times sitting around enjoying the same grub. As long as there's, uh, you know, uh, people's re- uh, dietary requirements and dietary rules are respected, mm-hmm. sitting around going good food and is a great connector. So I don't want to turn this into sort of some sort of story of this mystical past where everyone got on and it was all, <laughs> you know, there were no boundaries, man. Everyone was, everyone was cool with each other. 
but I think you know I think to 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 set the idea that there were um that it was all tough is also wrong mm. because things changed in the 20th century people quite understandably point to 1948 and the establishment of the state of Israel as the key moment and uh, not least because some of those countries were at war with Israel and wanted the what we would have called illegal aliens you know we we got rid of people we were wondering about being traitors out of our country didn't we weren't we well we locked them up in internment camps and um, there was in these some of these countries a very quick turning on the Jews of those of those countries to get them out and so there's a very painful and horrible history around that period where mm-hmm. people were forced to travel and I think a lot of Mizrahi Jews have in their history their family history a huge amount of pain and trauma from what happened at that time yeah definitely definitely while the state of Israel is part of that, so is the bigger collapse of colonialism at that time. So the countries that we're talking about across North Africa, around the Levant, these were countries that had been held together by the Ottoman Empire, by various European powers mm. who were going, oh, God, oh, we don't know what to do with this lot. These, we, we can't, you know, after the war. I think there was a real, you know, the the sort of the the administration of these countries, the sort of attempt to hold them together was falling apart. Mm. So the state of Israel, uh, the establishment of the state of Israel clearly was a major lever for this, for these painful, um, what became mass expulsions from these Mm. countries. But it was, it was bigger than that. And, and it took, in some countries, it took a lot longer. So places like Iraq, where... Um, those communities into the really into the 60s and 70s it, um, before the expulsion was sort of deemed complete. But you've got this very painful period of mm. people ac- who were being labeled, who were labeled as Mizrahim, but being forced out of their homes and mm. arriving in Israel, having lost so much and being given an identity and a home and a label. Mm. And that's what I meant earlier about it being sort of almost okay because Mm -hmm. it meant that they were safe. So I think, I think while we, with our modern lens, we can look at the, the the idea of the Mizrahim being a sort of version of Orientalism. And there it is. All of that is true. If Mm. you put it, if you put the experience of these communities at the center of the time, they were being, they felt uh, exiled, pushed out of their homes and their cultures and were seeking safety. We'll hear some stories of how that panned out, how that felt of feeling like you've arrived safety and then slowly realising that it's a safety of a very specific kind. Yeah, because not everyone was treated equally. <laughs> um, you, you know, so uh, these communities arriving in Israel weren't necessarily treated. In fact, they weren't treated the same as some of the European Jews. Yeah, and that kind of brings us full circle back to the need to differentiate them in inverted commas and to call them by a very specific name, a grouping, um, which meant people from elsewhere and over there. Yeah, 
them over there, them and us, right? It's another, it's that, that age old game. The arrivals of these communities into Israel was very different for, um, and even not just in terms of, we'll, we'll hear from people whose family experiences directly and, and we'll get much more personal testimony. And this is not us speaking for anyone, but, um, and families arriving and being sent to the hardest parts of Israel to, to live in. Being the given most very un- poor... underdeveloped, undernurtured, um, you know, as in underdeveloped and undernurtured by the new regime. <laughs> because obviously there were people there before and they were being, uh, you know, cultivated and lived in and everything fine. But in terms of... The new occupants, these were seen as places where, yeah, you could just pop some people and some tents and standpipes of water or whatever and start to slowly absorb them where was considered. They weren't getting the same treatment as some of the Jews arriving from Europe who were welcome into the kibbutz movement, who That's were right. given homes in lush, um, newly irrigated uh, farms and communal farms or placed in the cities, which would have felt, you know, um, Tel Aviv in the 50s was modelling itself on Beirut, which That's was right. the Paris of Paris of the East and felt would have felt very European. Yeah. Um, the, they were not necessarily in those places. Yeah, and to the point that people were sprayed with this chemical DDT, an insecticide used in agriculture, and uh, they were sprayed because they were considered to be carrying vermin with them, carrying um, parasites, body lice, considered to be unclean, whereas the European Jews arriving <laughs> were not subjected so it's a bit like oh i was going to make a very political statement i guess it's perhaps a bit like some uh, we have people leaving war zones at the moment arriving to give being given homes by the great and the good from uh you know from across the country and then you've got some people arriving from war zones arriving to immigration centers where they're not allowed to have pictures of mickey mouse mickey mouse um disney characters for the children because we don't want them to feel too welcome so if you're from Mm -hmm. ukraine you're welcome we'll look after you so you know there's i guess that would be the analogy that would be what it would have felt like how come how come they get treated differently While the story of Israel is a complicated one and one that we are generally trying to avoid, I think there's one particular bit of history that is really interesting mm-hmm. uh, post-48, which is in the early 70s, this difference between the way the Mizrahi were treated and everybody else led to a movement called the Israeli Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. So in 1971, uh, a group founded from a series of protest movements and we're not going to do the history of this but i'm just going to wildly simplify it they saw very clearly that their ethnic background was the was the reason they were being treated differently and identified very strongly with the black panther movement in america Mm -hmm. they they felt that level of discrimination and 
and decided to do something about it. So there were a series of protest movements. They were labeled as being agitators and they were uh, water cannoned at protest at protests that perfectly civil protests. They were water cannoned and um, weirdly with green paint, which which caused a huge upset at the time because it was seen to be using the color of the flags of some of the countries they were coming from. I don't know. There's a whole sort of a feeling of like that, that maybe there was an extra diss in all of that. And and it, people became more militant. Um, So this, this movement of the, the Israeli black Panthers did eventually find its way through into mainstream politics. And in some ways, modern Israel's politics has been shaped about which, which parties welcomed, and try to represent these uh, the Mizrahi has lasted through to the party of the current government having such a strong Mizrahi following. There is a strong history of um, of pain and trauma and discrimination within the Israeli state, which has led to some of what we've got in the, at the moment. And some of that is to do with this labelling of so many people. Um, from so many diverse backgrounds with just one word. And I think aside from the word, there are also obviously markers, physical markers. And again, taking it back to kind of race, supposed race categories. The markers were darker skin. Yep. Darker hair, darker eyes. A lot of people in Israel now say, oh, well, it's really different now. It's, e- it's equal. But if you look statistically at who have the elite jobs, yep. who are in power, um, you know, 60% of the country is actually not Ashkenazi perceived. Um, and yet that group of Ashkenazi descendant people have you know, probably 90% of those elite jobs. When I worked in schools, it was really clear what the perceptions were. So those same deficit narratives around class, around education levels of parents, around value of education, all of the tropes that, that get reproduced around these groups of blacks yeah Mm, yeah and i'm saying that in inverted commas for a very specific purpose um about what their potential was which schools they could attend which streams they could be in so all of my kind of lower sets in english teaching would have more misochim in terms of university access and then, you know, going on to academics and professors, um, there's, you know, there's been grant schemes and interventions and things sounds that kind a lot of interrupt. Like, it sounds like that sort of um, the labelling of, oh, well, we need to do something about BAME, the BAME community. Let's, let's, you know, you know, the sort of use it, both the identification of that group as a pro- different difficult problem uh uh you know disadvantaged identified as disadvantaged yeah. treated with disadvantage but not actually treated with equality 
Just keep on and, describing yeah. them as described yeah. as disadvantage. Yeah. And then, you know, Jews in general, there's an issue around intergenerational trauma and health implications, uh, physical health and mental health. But again, you know, that population that is identified as Mizrahi will have poorer outcomes in health, mm-hmm. in education. They will be treated differently by the justice system, by policing, um, army positions that they'll be able to get, get, you know, who can become judges um, and so on and so forth. So so that kind of, yeah, the kind of naivety of the setting up a Jewish state for, well, an an Israeli state for Jews, a safe place. Even within that, there is the racialization aspect and the differentiation. And so it's not just like picking at things, going, oh, they gave them a different name. Because if you were to take a kind of colorblind, peace loving stance on it, you go, well, they had to call them something because they were coming from different place. And mm-hmm. but. It, the way that that kind of those markers um, are identified and how that plays through through generations in terms of actual f- outcomes for people in terms of health education justice system and so on and so forth is really stark and really does continue on this conversation should prepare people who don't know much about this these communities for hearing about those families' experience of of discrimination in a place and within a community that generally just gets the label Jew, right? And well, you know, all don't all Jews aren't they all like X? Aren't they all from this background? Um, and I think there are campaigners like uh, Hen Mazig. He's really focused on raising the profile of over the past few years. Is just getting the media, I think, more in America. But um, just to stop using that idea that all Jews in Israel are white, because it hides that complexity, it hides that discrimination, it hides all that history. I wanted to jump to a really interesting question, which is, I'm going to, set it up with a very badly delivered joke so apologies which is um, you're gonna sing a song for a minute you should be so lucky um a jew and an arab walks into a bar and orders himself a drink so Uh the idea that uh that an arab can be a jew actually blows so many people's minds and um or that jews it's not that can be are arabs and However, we go around this idea of who Jews are, who Arabs are, and we are not here to have that conversation. That is not my area of expertise, but they're such a difficult idea exposes so many problems, given that both Jews and Arabs are Semites. So if we if all Jews and there's this whole idea of the DNA connection between thousands of years that all Jews have got this kind of genetic marker for whether Nonsense, you believe eugenics whether, whether you believe that i or say not, eugenics <laughs> i say i i think i am i agree with you um but a lot of people do believe that if that's true then we are all we you know the origin story is not 
uh, is not a European story. It's not. It's an Arab story. We are from that part of the world, right? Whatever, however you want to call it. When this you say I, we, who are you talking about? Jews. I think, yeah. I think, you know, I grew up in the 70s, 80s with the idea that um, with all the wars and conflict going on in, in around the Middle East, that um, my family members would be talking about the Arabs this, the Arabs that, it's us against the Arabs and the wars against the Arabs. And um, I think imagine being in, and I'm not from that family, from that cultural background, but imagine if your family background was Arab and you're hearing other Jews talking about wanting to, uh, being at war with Arabs. And I think the, for the communities that left the uh, countries who were, ex sorry, not who were left, who were ex exiled, expelled, forced out violently you can understand why the fact that they are no longer weren't wanted as arabs meant that they're like okay fine we're israelis we're europeans we've gone somewhere else we leave that behind but it doesn't take away from the you know the historical you know the historical and geographical truth that they are the same people often and from, you know, they would have been neighbors and eaten the same foods, shopped in the same shops, gone to pray in places next door to each other. Slightly, you know, obviously different religions, but um, uh, these people arrived in Israel or wherever they went, they would have come with Arab traditions. And yet um, the, there's been this linguistic separation between Jew and Arab. Mm. And I think we can't solve that. It's not from, I don't think it's for either of us to comment on. But I, I, I'm going to put a link to an incredible video, which I will warn you is probably not suitable for work, but is very funny, of uh, an Israeli comedian artist called uh, uh, Joanne Safadi, which is to be an Arab. And it's great music, but it's really challenging. And the video is very strong in, in drawing attention to some of those um, challenges in modern Israel about what it means to be both Arab and Jew. I started with a crap joke, but I think it's a question that um, is at the heart of that term Mizrahi, because mm -hmm. what do we mean? Who are we talking about? Mm -hmm. If we talk, if we saw these people and they weren't Jewish, we'd probably be quite comfortable calling them Arabs or they'd be comfortable with that term. But because yeah. of the history and geography, that's, that's not the way that it's worked. Yeah. Yeah. And we probably don't want to talk about this, so you can cut this whole bit out. But it's really interesting. Also, then that position of being in Israel with a defined Arab, Arab kind of described uh, enemy. Um, and the responses that happen from Arab descendant Jews to create separation sort of performative separation to say we are not those people um and and that happens you know anyway among jews uh, you know i grew up with family who were like oh we're not those ultra-orthodox jews and we're not those jews who are like this you know we're these jews we're cultural jews or we're commun north london communists <laughs> Jew rejecting Jews you know so so there is always that kind of like layers of definition but 
anecdotally, you know, people will often say that it, the kind of left-wing liberal Jews are often the Ashkenazi ones. Yep. And the people who are really trying to punch down hard and being punched down on will be more the Mizrahi Jews. Um, and also, like, loss of language, Um you know, um, holding on to Arabic, uh, you know, is not something that a lot of people felt that they could insist for their children when they came from Iraq, for example. Uh, it was all about learning the language, whereas maybe European Jews might have been able to hold on more to Yiddish. Oh yeah, or just whatever. I mean, I was I spent uh, a while on a kibbutz in the eighties, and uh, I was on a kibbutz which were pretty much all Anglo's. So they were South Africans and um, uh, Australians and people from and Brits, and they were this, you know they'd pretty much set up a kibbutz where they could carry on speaking English. I mean, they oh, oh totally, it's you know. the country is full of people who just will carry on speaking English and being an English teacher was really cool because all the kids wanted to learn English. Um, yeah. But the only Arabic that is taught in schools is is the kind of Shakespeare equivalent of Arabic. It's not the kind that kids actually want to learn. They want to learn mm. daily speaking Arabic, but it's, they're not allowed to. It's not, it's not available in the school curriculum. Like all immigrant communities, there is oppression and there is discrimination. And there is also the gifts that these communities bring to the world around it. So that Israel has been transformed by the Yemeni community, has been tr transformed by the, uh, the Iraqi Jewish community. All these communities have broadened and changed Israel in, in many good ways as well. And, you know, the music, uh, I mean, people who like Ottolenghi's food uh, in this country have a lot to thank for those that Mizrahi food arriving in, you know, uh, being part of Jerusalem, very right? ancient, but also being reinforced by these waves of of spices and of, 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 of the, these waves of communities coming in and building on that. So that's in Israel, but around the world, these communities have continued to travel. Uh, historically, they. As Wait I a said, second. Ottolenghi, yeah. Italian and German. Uh, and, yeah, but he worked in uh, Jerusalem. Yeah. And his, his cooking yeah. and his, what he's, that's what I mean, he's labelled, he's kind of repackaged. I think we're going into really problematic all territory right, because the, it, off, the whole off. thing about hummus, for example, oh, all right, okay. is that, you know, and falafel is that it's seen as uniquely Israeli, but it's not, it's stolen from like Arab cultures so it's fine for these Ashkenazi Jews to appropriate cultural stuff and call it uniquely Israeli but also while holding down people from actually enjoying some of the benefits of Ashkenazi and also when you said um, you know immigration stories but it's interesting that if you think about Israeli food it's not Ashkenazi food that's that, that it's not Ashkenazi food that you think of right the I don't know it is for me I mean I oh, okay. ate a lot of you know laundered chicken <laughs> um very thin soups with I'm, I'm so sorry Penny yeah well look, I think the food thing probably needs a bit more yeah either we do the 
is is hummus Jewish? Question. Oh dear. <laughs> Can you, you imagine how that goes? You could do a whole episode though on the 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 myth of falafel and hummus. So this has been Who Do You Think You Are with Penny Raby Girl and Elan Ezekiel. Thanks, dear listeners, for your ears for listening. So this podcast is all about inclusion. So it's good to have you included and great to have you along exploring the universe, whether you're Jewish or just Jew curious. And we'll put some show notes about how you can get involved learn more get in touch we're on blue sky facebook and at least for now twitter or x or whatever it calls itself these days do us a favor please like and subscribe Uh, reviews and ratings really help especially good ones Um, so take a moment if you can do that and i hope you'll join us again and again and again and again explore the universe asking who do you think you are